The films we're going to be discussing today, uh, the two versions of Cape Fear, both contain content related to sexual assault, as does our discussion. So if it's likely that that conversation is going to upset you in any way, you might want to give this episode a skip. The good. The bad. And the remake. Spoilers in three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to the Good, the Bad, and the Remake podcast, where we watch some classic films, some not so great, and their respective remakes. Will it be an unmake, an agree make, or amazing? My name's Neil, and these are my co hosts. Hi, I'm Catherine. Hello, I'm Ben. Today we have episode 21, Cape Fear. Uh, here are our thoughts on the original, our expectations for the remake, and that one thing we will take from the remake into the original. So, hello again, guys. We're on episode 21. Uh, we've got the Cape Fears. Uh, as always, we have watched two films this week, uh, but there is only one synopsis. And Ben shared pre-record that he was quite confident about this one. So, easy. no pressure, Ben. Real easy. Released after a years-long stint in prison, violent sexual predator Max Cady makes his first stop, lawyer Samuel Bowden, who Cady believes is responsible for his conviction. Determined to exact a personal and psychological revenge, Cady begins a labyrinthine assault on Bowden and his family, in particular, focusing on their 15-year-old daughter. As antagonism turns to violence, the Bowdens make a calculated retreat, whereby the final confrontation between the opposing forces of the law will take place at Cape Fear. I think I just watched a couple of films like that. Yeah, boy. So in terms of the films themselves, then, uh, if you didn't listen last week, uh, I'd not seen either of them. So going in very blind, loosely knew what they were about. That's about it. Catherine, remind our listeners what your history with the films? No real history. I hadn't seen the original and the remake. I know I'd seen. wasn't sure if I'd seen the full film. It's just one that I turned on late at night one night. But I just remember how Robert De Niro looked in it. And that was it. Yeah, I'd seen Cape Fear, the remake, when I was about, I want to say 11 or 12. Uh, but I think it was an edited for TV version because there's one scene in particular that definitely wasn't as graphic as uh, as it is on the unedited version. Um, and I didn't see the original until about 10 years later, re-upping on the, on the remake to DVD and saw, oh, I'll get the original in a double pack with it as well. So, Catherine, have you got uh, all the stats and facts? on these films for our listeners. Cape Fear, 1962, directed by J. Lee Thompson, who directed Guns of Navarone and Ice Cold and Alex. Budget, three million. I couldn't find how much it made. Couldn't find it anywhere. Went to the box office mojo, the numbers, Wikipedia, obviously, couldn't find it. Remake, 1991, 79 million it cost to make. It grossed 182.2 million. It, it made its money back. I was directed. Hang on a second. Sorry. Where did you get 79 million from? Because I was looking at it earlier and it said 35. Um, I haven't cited my references, Ben, but I remember now I've seen a 35 million as well. 
Yeah, 79 would be way too high, I, w- I would have thought, in 1991. I wonder if I've just typed that in wrong. So, yeah, it made it made a lot of money. Uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. I think, is it right that he, him and Robert De Niro have done nine films together? And this was their seventh? Seventh, yeah. I was looking. 1962 to 1991, that's 29 years. So if you made the next one 29 years later, it would have been last year. Wow. And I was, I was just trying to look at the differences between the 1962 version and the 1991 where it feels like there were a lot of years in between and I'm not sure if the 1991 version would be so different from 29 years later today I I know what you mean yeah I do know what you mean cool thank you Catherine as you say 29 years apart it'll be really interesting to get into the uh, into the differences so Catherine as always do you want to kick us off with your thoughts on the original film I was quite surprised how good this film was and I don't, I don't know why. I'm always quite surprised when older films are really good. And I've seen so many good older films. I don't know why that is. But I always think, well, things will have improved so much as technology and knowledge improves. Newer films must be better. But this was a brilliant film. I was tense for the whole movie. Like The moment Max Cady reappears at the bowling alley after he's already spoken to Sam, my stomach just tensed up. And I don't think it relaxed again until about four days later. From that moment that he comes in, you know you're never going to get away from this man. He's going to be there. And there's a line that Sam Bowden said, you have to know him to feel the threat. So this this is when he's trying to get across to the, I'm not sure if it's the judge or the police chief or whatever, that this man is a threat to his family, but there's nothing that they can do about it. You can only act after the fact. Yeah. And that frustration, but he says, you know, you have to know him to feel the threat. And that is so true. And he did feel the threat. It was so menacing. And there's like a, I hesitate to say it, but there was a charm about him, even though he's so frightening. Robert I feel Mitchell. a bit weird. Yeah. Oh, totally. I feel very, very strange about saying it, but he had like a, like a magnetism. Mm. But it's, it's, he's dangerous. And it's like, like when you're drawn to the edge of a mountain and you want to look over, you know, you shouldn't get close. About halfway through the film, halfway through my notes, I, I wrote down, I cannot watch any more. Of these like I can't watch another one of these films I feel sick I'm not doing it I'm not watching the new one because it, it was so tense I also made a, a note later on which just said glass him which in with in big capital letters and I think that was from the moment that when he appears on the houseboat and he has the wife on her own mm. and she had all this this like row of glasses behind him behind her and did nothing she just sort of Did she go for the knife at some point, but didn't manage to get it? But right, if you're going to use your family as bait, then at least give them a fighting chance if anything goes wrong. There was no protection. It was like, I'm going to use you as bait, but I'm not going to give you any weapons. I'm not going to show you how to fight. I'm not going to do any of this. I'm just going to lure him here and then we'll see what happens. And it just, I have to stop myself in films because I do it all the time. I go, why didn't she do that? Why didn't he do that? Why didn't she hit him? Why didn't she run there? Why didn't he hide there? Why didn't she kick him in the balls? And I, I do it all the time. And obviously when, you, when you're in the moment, I felt that they kind of froze, you know, the, the, the absolute fear froze them. But still, he's left them nothing. No protection. It was a bad plan. Well, come on. These women can't defend themselves. They need big, strong men around <laughs> to do that. They were big men. He's um, <laughs> yeah. six, six foot one, um, Gregory, Gregory Peck. Peck, and six foot three for Robert Mitchum. 
I reckon but, there was a whole lot of testosterone flying around that set. Well, Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum did not like each other. And mm. I think everybody was pretty scared of Robert Mitchum from what I've read. The quote was he strutted around the set in character and people just stayed out of his way. Yeah, it was it was really tense, like really tense. One of the most tense films I've ever seen. But it was quite tight. I didn't feel it was overlong, but it was disturbing. It was it was a hell of a disturbing film. And it was disturbing enough for me. But I, I knew, I, I just knew that everything in the remake was going to be more. When this film ended, I was like, I don't want to watch a remake. It's going to be more everything, more tense, more dramatic, more violent, more gory, more scary, just, just more. And I was like, I can't deal with it. I can't. So you haven't watched the Scorsese film then? You just, you're, you're staging a protest? No, I did watch it. I was, I did watch it. I felt... It was my duty to do it. And I knew I'd seen it before. I didn't really remember it. So I thought it can't be that bad because it hasn't affected me. So I decided I would watch it. There we go. What did, what, what did you think about, I mean, we can come back to this after we've all spoken if you want. I was just going to ask you what you, what you made of sort of the, the politics of the film in the sense that there's a lot that they can't show in 1962. Yeah. Well, in the book, it was clearly about rape, but they couldn't mention it, could they? The censors made them take it out. But it was heavily alluded to. Mm. I thought it was. It, mm. I thought it was clear. But it was, it was so uncomfortable when he started making, what is the word, overtures towards the daughter? and just Threats. Mm. He was making threats about some, oh, some of the comments. But I, I thought for a 1960s film, it was bold. Yeah. I was, I was quite surprised, really. Yeah. Because as much as the censors wanted to take certain stuff out, it was still clear what the film was about. So, yeah, I watched it with you. And and, and my first note I wrote down was that it was black and white. That was a, a stylistic choice as opposed to a technical one, which was interesting. And I think from, I think the score kicks in quite early on. There's a, there's a theme tune that's really, really tense, incredibly tense. The way, the way I describe it is kind of, Sam is like the representative of the all-American family man you know, he's got a wife and daughter, he's a lawyer, he's an upstanding citizen, and he was a witness to a crime, which is rape, or was rape, uh, or some kind of sexual assault at least, although not explicitly said, he's a touch time. And Max Cady is like the complete opposite, in that he is a sick, sadistic, uh, sexual predator. But what's interesting is that Max Cady becomes intelligent in prison. Or maybe he was intelligent before, you know, to give him some credit. No, he was illiterate before he went into prison. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he learns to really, he becomes intelligent. And he almost becomes, what a better phrase, a reflection of Sam. He's he's now can compete with Sam in the intelligence stakes, which means Sam has to compete with him in the kind of darker stakes. And I think that's really, really cool concept. I thought the scene when they first uh, meet each other, at least on, on film, um, so I think he walks into the court and Sam doesn't see Max at least, uh, but then uh, Max comes over to him in the car and just takes his keys away and uh, and explains obviously why you know who he is. I I believe that Sam doesn't recognise him at first. Maybe he's pretending not to recognise him. I don't know. And then uh, he explains who he is and and what he's going to do. And immediately from that moment, 
as Catherine said, especially when they go to the bowling alley, Max is just going to be prowling and predating for you know until until something until somebody does something to stop him. And I love the fact you know he tries to do the straight up right thing. You know he's fearing for his family. He tries to, you know get the police involved. The police even try to help him. You know by bending some rules and stuff. You know to say look we know what you mean. We're going to shake him down. We're going to pick yeah. him up every day. We're going to kick him. You know drive him out of town. Whereas Max is going, yeah, I'm more intelligent than that now. You know, you might have been able to do that to me before, but not now. So Robert Mitchum as Max Cady, I think like you said, Catherine, charming is maybe, maybe it is the right word, but you know, he was, he was in that bar chatting up women who were with other men. He was very confident and, you know. Absolute a, balls on him. The yeah. Absolute yeah. balls on him. Yeah. And he, and he. Uh, am I right in saying he was a naval person? You know, he was a well-trained man. He was he was uh, you know, a big chap. You know, he's probably attractive to, to to many women, but obviously, many women don't know who he actually is. Yeah. Um, and the first time you see him, at least directly with the woman where he assaults her or rapes her, that was that was scary. Um, <laughs> you know, I can't again because at the time they probably didn't show quite as much as well they certainly don't show as much as they do in the remake uh which we'll get to but then i like the i say i like that's probably not the best way to put it but the the woman who he attacked you could feel her fear she was so scared of him scared to the point where she wouldn't speak to the cops she wouldn't speak to private investigators she just wanted to leave town it was safer for her at an emotional level on a physical level on a mental level to just get out of the way because there's no point in getting it. He is that scary. I am not. I am not standing in a courtroom with him in the other side of the room. And that is incredibly powerful. You know, we you hear it all the time with these kind of stories, even today. You know, it's it's the amount of women who maybe don't come forward from these kind of experiences is 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 saddening. Things that I think were maybe of their time <laughs> were we touched on the the wife and daughter and how they were they were literally there to be, well, certainly the daughter was there to be. The sexual attraction, if you like, for 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 Max Cady, the wife was just there to be the housewife. Largely, I felt she was there to. She didn't really do a huge amount, and that's not a reflection on the actress. It's the script and character she's been given. I think at one point she tries to convince him. Sam wants to go and shoot Max, and she tries to convince him no. And that that's about all I think she does, other than other than be there uh, as a wife to the daughter, which is which is a shame, and we'll get into that in in the remake as well. The ending was was quite quite intense as well. So, so at the end, the big the big fight breaks out. The copies that Sam's uh, got William gets gets drowned, or strangled, and drowned. A whole host of things happen, and he he's got the gun on Sam. Uh, sorry, Sam's got the gun on Max. He's got the chance now to kill him. There's a whole kind of predating scene. But he's got the gun on him, and he decides not to shoot him. And he decides your life can be spent in prison, mate. And then husband, wife, and daughter ride back on the on the boat. And that maybe was the 1960 way of doing a happy ending. <laughs> you know, that the family go back and it's not a happy ending. Um, because you know, the trauma that they've had, and Max is still out there and he's gonna come out again at some point. He might even get away with it because we don't even know. He yeah. killed he killed a cop. He He's did kill going him. away yeah. for a while. Yeah. So no, I thought it was. I thought it was brilliant. I thought for as Catherine said, you know, some of these older films. Sometimes you, you know, when you look back at them and think, you know, can they be as good as films of today and, and more recent times? I thought this was was brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was really really good. Genuinely frightening. Genuinely scary. And after watching it, I was really excited to see what Scorsese did. Nice. Looking at where this film came from, because I didn't realize. 
Gregory Peck hadn't yet done To Kill a Mockingbird. It came out the same year. And in a way, I would have expected that this was trading on Gregory Peck's image as the perfect model of decency but it turns out he was probably just being typecast uh, around this time and then you've got so he's you know a giant of the silver screen gregory peck very much in a jimmy stewarty kind of mold you know the every man the decent man and then you've got robert mitchum who's he is just cool as fuck uh, but a real tough guy you know like you've alluded to he, he genuinely had a reputation for being a tough guy and that was all he ever really wanted to be in films was was the tough. And he brings a, a really disturbing humanity to Max Cady, I think, which is what you both are talking about with his his sort of charm. But I think he's also probably I don't know if he was a method guy. I mean, you're saying that he he wanted to intimidate people on the on the set, you know, and be Cady in between takes essentially. And I think in his performance, there's reflected a, a naturalism that go, goes up against Peck's slightly more formal acting technique. So just to have those two giants going at one another and all the stuff you've said, like Neil, about how Katie had to get smart and Bowden has to get dirty. And that's part of Katie's plan is to bring him down to that animalistic level and also try and take what Bowden's got. And then you've got, Jay Lee Thompson, who just come off Guns and Navarone, massive hit, Ice Cold and Alex, like you mentioned. His career after this, it's not bad, but it's kind of disappointing. He, he ended up doing a hell of a lot of Charles Bronson films, including Death Wish 4, way down the line in the 80s. And some of those are fine, but on the strengths of, strength of this, and I think he's inherited a very good script, but Jay Lee Thompson really tries to give Hitchcock a run for his money in the tension stakes. The two scenes really that stood out to me, one is the scene between, I think she's called Miss Taylor, isn't she? The the, the girl that Katie picks up in the bar. She's referred to as a drifter. I'm not sure if that is um, a euphemism for a, a working girl, shall we say? Or maybe just someone who's promiscuous and, and unmarried. I don't know. That there's, you know, I'm not trying to label her or anything like that. The scene between her and Telly Savalas, Telly Savalas is the private detective um, that Bowden's brought in on this, doesn't need to be in the film, really. And it is quite a bold scene because it's addressing not only survivor guilt, but it's addressing things that I can't remember really having been talked about in big budget studio American films at this time, which is sexual violence and also sadism on Katie's part, taking pleasure and causing pain on uh, you know a weaker person not to mention stalking a teenage girl uh, and that scene between miss taylor and, and telly savalis is also exposing the gender bias of the law at the time which arguably does still exist you're right 85 percent of women don't report and and it's not just because they're scared some of it is shame but it's also their whole life is going to be examined and they are going to be called names on the stand they are going to be asked if they were promiscuous and all that sort of stuff. And it's completely irrelevant to someone who's just been raped and beaten. The other scene that stands out to me is the stalking of the girl through the school. That The way that scene is shot and edited is absolutely incredible, especially for 1962. The use of long lenses behind the, the sort of the bars, the, the fence of the school, you know, as she's running away and, and KD is almost like Michael Myers just walking towards her 
because he knows he's bigger. He knows he's stronger. He knows he's smarter. He doesn't need to run around and make a scene. He's going to get her. And if he doesn't get her, at least he puts the fear of hell in her. And then, you know, she's hiding in the basement and she thinks she sees Katie coming. And all you see are these massive rough hands and the crotch. And that's what, in her mind, Katie is now reduced to. He is just a sexual predator. He's going to maul her and he's going to defile her. But it's a fake out. It's the janitor. And she thinks she's got away and she runs into Katie and then she really freaks out and gets hit by a car. I think that whole sequence is is the high point of the film. And I think that is a sort of a mini masterpiece of, of how to shoot and edit tension from a character's point of view and make them make you feel what she's feeling. The ending, the very ending, it's fine. I mean, it's a morality tale and, and it leaves you with Bowden taking the higher ground, saying, you're not going to drag me down to your level. I'm still better than you. But the bit that is brilliant, a very, very iconic shot of Mitchum getting onto the boat where Bowden's wife is. And he's he's been in the water, he's been in the rain, it's dark, and he just comes through the door and there's just a shaft of light across his face and his body. And it is it's a really scary shot. It's a very, very cool shot. You know, it's you know beautifully framed, but it is a really scary shot, I think. And that's a, a, an iconic sort of Mitchum moment. And then the proposition that he gives her, consent, and I won't go after your daughter. And that's horrific. Like, that's a horrifying idea. But for a film that is 60 years old, I couldn't believe that that was in there. And th- th- there's also just that weird detail of the fact that she's got an exploded egg on her skin. And I don't know what I don't know why that adds so much, but there's 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 a lot of elemental stuff going on in that finale. And then Peck gets there, and it turns out he was going after Nancy, the girl, the whole time. The whole thing with going after the wife was just a diversion to get Sam away from the daughter, so Katie can get his ultimate prize, which is the fifteen-year-old girl. And that is a brilliant reveal. Peggy, the wife, just screams it to Sam. You know, like, what are you doing here? He's going after Nancy. And then we cut to her and the the phone lines have been cut and she's on her own again. It's a brilliant moment. And I can't imagine what the sort of intakes of breath that would have caused in 1962. Because I genuinely don't think there was anything quite like this with two, you know, real heavyweights of cinema in a film this dark. I don't know. This It's just dr- dripping in dread. I think mean, it's brilliant. It is a brilliant film. Finally, like Gregory Peck just clobbering Robert Mitchum with a rock is really satisfying. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> that um dripping in dread, Ben. If we were doing a three-word review for the original, <laughs> that'd be it. Dripping with dread. Dripping with dread and a little bit of egg. Yeah. <clears throat> what I was gonna say was that as you were talking there and visualizing the the, the scene where uh Katie goes after the daughter, like the kind of final towards the end of the film. We've seen that kind of, or I've seen that kind of film, a scene, sorry, we've done many times, but it's normally a horror man in a mask. Yeah. It's a, it, totally. you know. And Halloween. This it's Halloween, isn't it? Yeah, it's Halloween. Yeah, it's Halloween or Friday the 13th or any of those kind of, you know, horror films of, um, whether it's sexual predatory or whether it's just violence against women or whatever it is, you know, these horror films have been done with a man in a mask, typically. Uh, this is not a man in a mask. This is a man in a hat. Um, <laughs> although he's, he's not, lost his habit. Yeah, he's not a boogeyman like those those horror no, characters no. are. We know this guy and we know what's in his mind. And normally what's scary is the unknowable, you know, just mm. a shape coming for you. It's it's scarier in this because we do know what's in his head. 
exactly. Got to shout out Bernard Herrmann's score. That is awesome. Uh, Bernard Herrmann, also a legend, very purposefully hired for this film because of his work with Hitchcock. So Herrmann, you know, probably his most famous score is Psycho, which came out a couple of years before this. That's probably the other sort of X-rated film from this time that I think was really pushing what you could get away with. And then uh, also, I think there's there's quite a nice, obviously. Katie going after a 15-year-old girl is, is bad enough, but they've cast a very short girl who genuinely was 15 against Gregory Peck, who is tall and lanky. So when you first see them together, you think, gosh, she really is a child. And that's really important for where the film takes you, you know, later uh, on when he's sort of very lasciviously looking at her when she's on the boat. I was surprised that she was supposed to be 15. Yeah. She didn't seem that old to me, even not just her height, even... She just came across a lot younger. Any final thoughts before we move on to some remake chat? Do you want to mention Martin Bolson, Mr. Brown? I think we should. Yeah, Mr. Brown. Uh, <laughs> so He was a police chief uh, in this. Yeah. So yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. So different. So this would have been, what, 10, no, 13 years before? Fif- 15. Yeah. Uh, t- t- 10, 12. I don't know, so around then. Something around that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, did, he didn't have a cold. Uh, <laughs> I think he's very much of the the emerging sort of uh, oh god Lee Strasberg style of acting. So like Mitchell, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, this more naturalistic style of acting. I think Martin Balsam comes from that as well, and I think he's just a a credit to any cast. I think he's great, indeed. So I think fair to say we're all <clears throat> genuinely thrilled and terrified by the original. Uh, so on to the Scorsese remake. So Catherine, you'd. I think you'd seen uh, a lot of this before, or certainly maybe not at all, or don't remember details. So how was your experience of watching this? Did we watch it like two days later, I think it was? Something like that, yeah. Yeah? Nope, hated it. Next, that's it. Did you really hate it? Yeah, hated it. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And it's rare that I say that about film. I was right about everything it it was amplified by a thousand. It was more bloody. It was more sexual. It was just, even the weather was, you know, big and sort of extra and almost to a cheesy level. And the final fight was more, it was extra. It was too long. Even from the start, you know, like the, the Juliette Lewis voiceover, I was like, oh, no, I didn't like it. Really early 90s thriller vibe, which I like those kind of films. And I can't really expand more on what I mean by that, but you just, you know, don't you, what I mean by that. Do you? So so can I just check? So do you mean, did you hate it or dislike it because of how it made you feel and the experience well, or do you think it's I'll, a bad I'll film? Get, I'll get to that. Okay. I, um, I, well, there were things about it I didn't like, which I like in other films, such as, I, I didn't enjoy the weird camera shots, like the weird angles, the weird effects, the dream stuff, even the colours felt off to me I, I heard well I read that it was supposed to be using elements of tricks that Alfred Hitchcock used in his film well they work for Alfred Hitchcock but here at least not for me they didn't so I, I didn't I didn't like it I, I can't explain why I didn't like that but I didn't so there were positives so the music they used exactly the same score well it was it was redone wasn't it by Elmer Bernstein but a podcast they, favourite at this point, surely, with Magnificent exactly. Seven and Airplane now. Our old friend. Yeah. And I'm so glad they did. I 
really like that score. It's great. Yeah. It was so unique, so memorable, and it worked really well. And it worked just as well in the original as it did in this one. Juliette Lewis was fantastic as a confused, sort of semi-naive coming-of-age teen. Robert De Niro was fantastic. Completely insane, completely overdone. It's his Nick Cage role, but it was still great. Fair comment. They, they were both Oscar-nominated for their roles, so but for me, he didn't have any charisma. None. He was gross. I liked how Juliette Lewis torched him. She played an active role in trying to escape. And it references the themes addressed in the old one, the, the old one, the original that you were talking about just before, Ben, the sexual violence towards women and the non-reporting and the, the way that women are, they're blamed almost for what happens to them. And because the the whole reason in this one is different. The, the reason that Sam Cady comes after him is because his he was his lawyer. Sam was Max Cady's lawyer who discovered some information that the young girl that he raped was sexually promiscuous and he didn't present that in court, which I think we all know it would have had an impact on his sentencing and trial because yeah. for some reason that's viewed as okay. Well, she was sexually promiscuous. She was asking for it. So it brought up that. And also later on when the woman that I've forgotten her name, but who, who Sam was just about to embark on an affair with, she played the, the role of the woman who was raped in the original she was not going to report anything because she knew she knew how it would go she knew, she didn't want to get up on the stand and discuss all that and that's because that's what happens so they they brought in in that element from the original that's how they, they played it in this film but the the uncomfortable of this film was too much for me it was at a level i could just about tolerate in the original but i mean god that rape scene it, it was it was it was i i found that so difficult to watch I found, like I said, everything was more in this film and the Predator stuff was more, it was worse. The violence was worse. It was too uncomfortable for me. I couldn't watch this again, I don't think. And I've seen it before. And I mean, I know I have, so I, I don't know what the difference is there. But what I found interesting was how they played Danielle, the Juliette Lewis's character, and her relationship with Katie in that, I mean, she was attracted to him. She was... I mean, he was grooming her. Um, would that be worse for Sam if she willingly consented to him, if she willingly went with this guy? I mean, she was defending him at one point. Yeah. And how much worse is that? Such a difficult film to watch. I, yeah. And so I can't, I can't really tell you if it was the film, I, the, the actual film making a hated or the content of the film. I just didn't like it. So was it too over the top for you? Or too effective, or both. Um, both. Yeah. I, I just felt it didn't necessarily need to be so overblown. I didn't like how the the family was. I don't always like everything to be so happy and perfect and the the traditional American family and no issues that kind of thing. But I didn't like any of the family particularly. I didn't. Maybe you're not supposed to, but I didn't need that internal the problems that they were already having. I didn't enjoy Jessica Lange's performance and I, I've never got on with Nick Nolte. I, I never have. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's all, all of this together become one big, horrible film for me. <laughs> okay. I wow. don't know. So you there like you the music. Well, <laughs> yeah. We can say that much. Yeah, the music is, I don't think any of us would argue it's fantastic. Yeah. I'm so glad that they brought that back. I'll let you guys talk about how much you loved this film 
<laughs> well, so um, Ben, you made a comment in the end of, of Airplane, the Airplane Zero episode about it's a bit different, a spoof of a serious wartime thriller. And it's not a spoof. It's not a spoof. That's not the right word. I don't think satire is the right word either. It's too dark a topic to be that satirical, but it does dial things up a lot. Robert De Niro is a, is a while Max Cady in the original does have a certain charm about him and you could see, or I could understand how women would be attracted to him and he was flirting with them, chatting them up. Whereas Robert De Niro was, was more smarmy, greasy almost. His hair was greasy. You know, he was covered in those prison tattoos. He was massive, by the way. <laughs> he's, he's been down the old, uh, old prison gym. Again, they box off straight away the, you know, as he's being released from prison, I think he's got loads of books in his cell. And the guard says to him, you know, what about all your books? And he says, I've read them all. Uh, Already read them. He is now ready to compete with with Sam in the intelligence stakes. And then when we meet Sam and the family, I think we first meet them They're in the ice cream parlor. No, they're in the cinema first. So they just pop to the cinema. And uh, that's the scene where Katie sat in front of them. They don't, like, Katie knows they're there because that's why he's there. But Sam and the family don't know who he is. He's just being annoying and laughing and disturbing them, kind of watching the film. Then they go for for ice cream later. And again, you get the impression that this is just a normal husband and wife, happy family with a daughter. But slowly but surely, Sam's character is broken down into his... Like Catherine said, I, I couldn't make out if they were having an affair or on the verge of having an affair or they wanted to have an affair. And then later on, it's revealed that Sam has had previous to this where he's had affairs before. That tension created between husband and wife flows onto teenage daughter who kind of locks herself in a room. She's basically frustrated by turmoil, not turmoil, but the, the disruption in the household is, is affecting her. She's a teenager. She's having difficulty at school. She's smoking weed. Was she 15 in this again? Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, so all those things and, and that kind of I, I can't make out if this is a good thing or not. Because the the reveal of him, of Sam, basically burying the evidence. The original Sam would not have done that. He is, you know, straight up guy. He he follows the law. He follows the rules, at least at the start. Whereas in this, he perhaps made the right moral decision, but not the right legal one. Hmm. And then again, you've got that. You've got the thing with, you know, he's cheated on his wife before. Is he a good person? His slippery slope, I guess, had already started before Max Cady came back into his life. Uh, they got some scenes straight, you know, straight up the same, the car keys where he takes them. Uh, so another scene that's straight up lifted out of the original is the, the strip search scene where he's brought in for questioning. Uh, and in the uh, in the original, uh, Max is wearing these kind of long white, not tighty whiteies, mm. loosey whiteies, I'd call them. <laughs> whereas uh, whereas Max, uh, De Niro Max is wearing like fruity undies, with bright red pair. <laughs> it's just, it's just horrible. It is horrible to talk about because Max knows what he's doing. He's, he knows every little decision he's making, every little, you know, sitting on the wall before he kills the dog. You know, the piano wire is missing, which comes back later. And that scene is, is, is great. He's manipulating uh, his grooming, I think the word Catherine used is, is, is probably the right one. You know, the daughter into turning against her parents. He knows that they're having marital troubles. He know he knows all this detail. As we get to the, I guess, later part of the film uh, and that scene where he is grooming her, and that was really, really uncomfortable to watch. You the know, drama, where, where, the, in yeah, the theater, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was completely ad libbed. You know. All of it. Wow. And that was the first take. They did three takes and they used the, th- the first take. Even them, him, Robert De Niro, putting his thumb in 
Juliet yeah. Lewis's mouth. Or... Go away with that oh, these days, would you? No. <laughs> was, was, was she 15 in this? Yeah. She she was actually 15. Wow. No, do you mean at the time? Yeah. Yeah. No, the, no, no. She was 18. Juliet yeah, Lewis okay. was 18. Was she? Okay. Are you talking about the character or no, the actress? No, no, the, the actress. actress. Yeah, yeah. The actress, Juliet Lewis was 18. I checked that. I was concerned. Okay. All yeah, right. yeah, because it, yeah, it feels so difficult to talk about this saying like, but the scene with Laurie, uh, who was the uh, the woman that Sam was was going to be uh, or, or get about to start an affair with, and she's obviously the uh, a version of the woman who got raped in the in the, the first film, but it gave her a bit more kind of background and story, which I, which I liked, and it put a direct link between. Not only has he assaulted and raped this woman and bit her face off, when Sam goes to see her, um, he thinks it's just a random, I say random woman, but just a woman he doesn't know. And it turns out, no, it's the woman he's about to have this affair with. And she decides not to not to testify, not to, to turn him in, because she's worried about herself, her perception, her job, her career, standing up in court, and what it would do to Sam and his family, because she obviously has feelings for him. So I thought it was a really smart decision to give it more kind of weight and gravitas to to, to what he'd done, uh, at least directly to Sam. The whole reference to to that kind of theme of, you know, women who've been attacked or assaulted, you know, not coming forward or not feeling they can come forward. Um, he doesn't want to put his daughter through, you know, if if this was to if this was to happen, because didn't they discuss about using him as bait? Uh, and and he decides it's not Robert Mitchum who says to him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early on. Yeah. Yeah, Sam decides that's not, if it all goes wrong and he's, you know, even if he just laid a finger on her, not, you know, really sexually aggressive or anything, but just having to relive that trauma in court because Sam has had to witness people or see people have that trauma in court as he's a a lawyer. He's probably defended or, uh, you know, prosecuted some of these people. So, yeah, I think it's definitely Scorsese'd. Uh, should we say? So he dials up a lot of the, the violence, the swearing, all the kind of stuff you probably wouldn't get away with in, in the 60s. I think there's possibly a nice nod to the fact that rape was not used, a term used at all in the 60s film. And in this one, uh, he's discussing with his wife you know, about what Max did. And he, he doesn't say rape. I think he said it was assault or something or, or whatever. And later he, he says, because he didn't want to, to frighten them or worry them even more. I'll, I'll be interested when we get to the kind of, you know, scoring mechanisms and things, because what I what I liked about it was that it, it could have easily just straight up remade it in modern times, modern actors, uh, modern themes. But it did, Scorsese definitely tries to do something different with it. And I can't put my finger on, as I say, it's not spoof, it's not satire, it's not a dark comedy, it's none of those things, but it, he's adding almost a playful tone with it. And if, again, that's not the right word. It's just this, it's adding something to it that makes somehow makes it more uncomfortable. It's just um, seedier. I think it's seedier. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Ben, what about you? Well, to try and address the point you just made, I think there's a kind of cinematic hyperrealism it's it's not the naturalistic style that a lot of these actors would go for even de niro would go for you, you know uh, not de niro scorsese it, you know when he was coming up doing mean streets and taxi driver in the 70s his reference point was italian neorealism and this definitely is not that this is the evolution of the style that he developed with goodfellas so i think Scorsese is a really interesting at a really interesting point in his career as well because after Raging Bull won all the Oscars, the eighties were pretty rough on Scorsese. King of Comedy was a big flop. After Hours was a big flop. 
New York Stories, which he did a third of, I don't think was particularly well received. The only big hit he'd had in the last 10 years before Goodfellas was The Color of Money, which was a sequel to a 60s film. So then he's had this big hit with Goodfellas. Talking about the other thrillers that were coming out around this time, I don't know if this is what you were alluding to, Catherine, but we're in the age of Fatal Attraction, Pacific Heights, Consenting Adults, Basic Instinct. You know, these are the thrillers that are are, are really packing them in at, at this time. Scorsese's going after that market, but he's doing something that's in a completely different stylistic approach to all of those. I understand why you're struggling to to give it a name because it is really difficult to pin down. But it's it's all of the flashy editing, the the Dutch angles, the in camera effects, the post production effects, everything. I love this film, so I was really surprised when you said that you hated it, Catherine. And Neil, you seem to be a little bit on the fence about it compared to the original, at least, because I think if we go back to the beginning of this season when we did another Scorsese remake, um, The Departed, I forgot what it was called then. The thing that I really like about The Departed as a remake of Infernal Affairs is how it fills in a lot of details about the characters and their lives and and it tightens everything into this mesh where once they may have been slightly disconnected. And I think this does the same thing. I think Wesley Strick's script is fantastic. And what he's added that wasn't really there in the 62 version is the biblical element. Bowden is reliving the story of Job from the moment that Katie says to him, you're going to learn about loss. It's not just that I want what you have. It's not just that I'm going to take what you have. If you're going to keep these things, you've got to understand what it is to live without them. And I think the fascinating thing about Katie in this, apart from the fact that he's completely animalistic and brutal and lacking, like you said, all of the charm of Robert Robert Mitchum in the original, is that as the film goes on, yes, this character is really smart and really violent. He's not a psychopath, though. And I feel... As the film goes on, he's almost got a death wish. If it, if it means that he has to die at Sam Bowden's hands to ruin Bowden for the 14 years he took from him, so be it. He can't hurt him because he's virtually impervious to pain. He's not got anything left to take from him because his daughter doesn't talk to him. He's been raped in prison himself, so he knows what the experience is of that. You know, He's completely nihilistic almost. The thing that I'm really surprised that you said, though, Catherine, because it's my favorite thing about the film, is Jessica Lange. Not necessarily that she's my favorite thing, but I'm surprised that you didn't like her performance because I I think she is acting her fucking heart out in this film. The thing that I most respond to in this film, apart from all of the things that Scorsese's doing on a visual level, uh, and I think the cinematography is incredible in this film, is all of those four central performances, De Niro, Nolte, Juliette Lewis especially, and Jessica Lange, are absolutely amazing, I think. De Niro doesn't feel like any of the other De Niro characters that he's done with Scorsese. He almost disappears into KD so that you're seeing KD. You're not seeing Rupert Pupkin. You're not seeing Travis Bickle. You're not seeing Jimmy the Gent from Goodfellas. You're not seeing De Niro, I don't think. You're seeing this brute. Nolte, Nolte I think, is absolutely brilliant in this i think he, he starts off as that kind of charming bumbler when he's talking to to laurie increasingly becomes deceptive with his own wife and some of his legal partners and starts sweating and and eventually ends up this raging beast in the mud 
And he is 100% going to kill KD, dropping a rock on his face. It's only the force majeure that he's mentioned earlier on in the film, an act of God that was unforeseeable that came along, that actually saved him from that moment and washed KD out of his line of sight. Jessica Lange, I think, brings a lot of depth and strength to what could have just been a forgettable wife part, which I think it absolutely was in the original. She is sexy and she is tough, but she's also barely holding in all of this tempestuous emotion at the way that her life has turned out. There's lovely touches like she puts on makeup after having sex with her husband. When we've seen her just lying there, going through the motions with this man that she possibly doesn't love anymore. And she puts on makeup in the mirror while he's asleep to feel special again, to feel something about herself. She is thoroughly unimpressed with Kersik's macho stick, the Jodon Baker character who comes in to help him trap Katie in the house. She's completely uninterested in that. Uh, and in the scene in the boat at the end when Katie is really going after Juliette Lewis and he's going to make Lange and Nolte watch this defiling of their daughter. There's a close-up on Juliette Lewis as she's talking to, to Katie about the passages in Sexus that she's memorized. And barely in the frame is Jessica Lange, and she's still acting her heart out in that moment. She's giving a quietly brilliant performance. And when she says to Katie, I know about loss, I know about losing time, even years, she's talking about all of that time that she spent with Sam who she's now feeling like she has to defend against this monster and doesn't really want to. She's only there to protect her daughter at the very end. When it, I, I mean, it goes full bonkers after that. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. De, De, De Niro speaking in tongues and, and singing a song about the river as he's going down. But at the very end, Nolte washes the blood from his hands and Lange is reborn on the shore of the river, like emerging from the mud, like it's primordial soup. And Danny has entered this sort of enforced emotional maturity because of what they've been through. But I think the future of the Bodens as a family is very unclear. Danny has learned too much about her parents as individuals and as a unit to really trust them uh, ever again. And also she is the one who really did the most to take Katie out. Like, she did throw boiling water on him. She did set fire to his head, which is an amazing gag, by the way, the fire gag. I don't really know how they did that, but it looks incredible. And I think, yeah, the future of, of Sam and I can't remember her character's name. Now that's terrible. But Jessica Lange's character is very, very uncertain at the end. And that's the whole, that's the story of Job as well, which is, is directly referenced. I think the scene in the theater is brilliant it's a complete inversion of what the the original film did instead of a chase we have a seduction juliette lewis is phenomenal in that scene uh, everything that she does in this film i think is really brilliant and it doesn't come as much surprise that she's barely acting in a lot of those scenes i think she was really scared of de niro and also probably very much in love with him the moment that most creeps me out obviously the thumb in the mouth is gross after he kisses her He's going to walk away. He just squeezes her face and it infantilizes her again, where he's talking to her about her becoming a woman and, and that being scary to her parents. And then he kisses her and, and tries to accelerate this burgeoning womanhood. He squeezes her face like she's a tiny little baby. And 
walks away and the the range of emotions that Danny is going through at that moment as told through Juliette Lewis's face is really brilliant really makes me sad that Juliette Lewis's career sort of went the way it did because I don't think she really ever lived up to the promise of this film other than in Natural Born Killers so yeah I think this is is brilliant I think um it does go a little bit too crazy at the end I certainly when I first saw saw it came away feeling that ending didn't have as much impact as the rest of the film the scene with Laurie, the attack and it breaking her shoulder and biting off her cheek is horrific. Um, and the makeup in the hospital afterwards, when you see the effect of what he did to her, beating on her, equally horrific. But I love bringing that element in, like you said, Neil, like making Laurie important to what is happening with the family dynamic and the distrust and even sort of seething disgust that Lange has for Sam when she catches him on the phone and he hasn't done anything other than perhaps in his mind like there hasn't been an affair here it's just that they've had an, he's had an affair in the past and they've clearly gone through counseling for it the way that Lange says I don't know what I hate more your petty infidelities or that smarmy tone or something like that just everything about him at that moment is disgusting to her so for me the big takeaway from this is is those four incredible performances and, and that's what's brought me back to the film and over and over again and i think it does stand the, the, the test of time much more than things like basic instinct um or any of those sort of house invasion thrillers of the of the of the 80s and 90s the domestic thriller because scorsese is just throwing every trick in the book and i can see why that would turn some people off it's it's a little bit wacky at times and you could even look at de niro's katie at certain points and say he's laughable he's ridiculous but that adds to how horrific his brutality is, I think. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting when we come to score it, because I think this could be a split decision, couldn't it? Yeah. A few things just wanted to mention that we, I think we touched on a couple of them. So, yeah, we have Robert Mitchum, Gregory Peck, and Gesundheit Martin Balsam, Martin Balsam making, yeah. making, their, making their cameos. So Mitchum was the, he was a lieutenant that was speaking to to Sam about what they could do, what their options were. Gregory Peck is the lawyer of uh, Max Cady. I like the lawyer. I like the lawyer in both of them, actually. I like the lawyer in the original. Um, he was like this, this character. You could see straight away he was a character, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, in the original, we didn't talk about him, actually. He was cool because he was kind of a contemporary, like a peer of Gregory Peck's character, wasn't he? But then later mm -hmm. on, he realizes he can end Peck's career. He's like, mm -hmm. I'm coming for you, son. And Martin Balsam was a judge. Solomon himself couldn't have made a wiser decision, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. I, I like the, the point you mentioned about the, I guess, the religious elements or the that Scorsese had added. So was this before he made some of his... It was after Goodfellas because he turned the script down three times. No, he read it three times during while he was making Goodfellas. Spielberg was going to make it, which I find really hard to believe. Yeah. Spielberg he, was going to make this and Scorsese was going to make Schindler's List. Yeah, they did a swap, <laughs> didn't they? Yeah, I mean, Crazy. that that would have been an interesting change for both films, definitely. But I, see, imagine how... I, I love Spielberg. How can you not? And he, he's certainly not above making very tough films, but they're tough in a way that you feel the violence is justified. And I can't imagine Spielberg doing some of the things that Scorsese does with the violence and the threat in this. So I think regardless of how you feel about what Scorsese did, I think it's infinitely more interesting than what we would have got from Spielberg. 
Or what would Scorsese do with Schindler's Schindler's List? List. I'm not sure I want to see that either. No, I don't think I want to see that. Any final thoughts from you, Catherine, before we move into wrap-up? Maybe just that, and I'm not saying I like the film in any way, but what you've both discussed has made me think about the film in a different way. I still don't think I would willingly put this on and watch it. It It was too uncomfortable of a watch, and maybe that is why... I've taken against it so dramatically, but you've definitely given me some food for thought. And what about the original then? Because you said that was quite a harrowing experience, but could you see yourself going back and rewatching that? Yeah. Oh, I will say this. The film that they go to see at the beginning is Problem Child, which I did see in the cinema the year <laughs> that it came out. And the, the, the surest sign that Max Cady is not all there is... Problem Child is not funny in the slightest. It's certainly not funny <laughs> to the extent where you'd be sitting there going, oh! <laughs> you know, even if problem you have had child. a couple of blunts. Do you know what? I, did, I didn't realise that was Problem Child, and that yeah. is probably not a film I've thought about since it came out. I, I, wouldn't, just, I, I yeah. wouldn't give it a rewatch yeah. if I was you. Very good. So, yeah, I think some interesting discussions there on, on the remake before we get into our kind of scores and rating systems. Any more stats and facts you've got for us there, Catherine? Scores. IMDb score for the original, 7.7. IMDb for the remake, 7.3. So they're kind of on a level, really. Rotten Tomatoes. The original Rotten Tomatoes gets 96% critic score, 86% audience. And it was, what, 75% and 77% for the remake. So they're, they're both fairly... Got quite good scores. I mean, really good scores from Rotten Tomatoes for the original. The original, what I I gathered was it was a positive but cautious reception due to the film's content. So yeah, in 1962, I can imagine it enraged the censors, but in general, I think people were quite responsive to it. And then Cape Fear, the the remake was quite a big success, obviously made 180 million. Who do you think? And it's not Tom Cruise. Um, Nicholas Cage. No, it was going to play Sam Bowden. In, in the, the remake. remake. In the remake, yeah. Oh, no, I know Spielberg wanted Bill Murray as KD. Bowden? As KD? No, he, he wanted Bill Murray as KD. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, yeah. Harrison Ford was going to be Bowden, but he was more interested in KD, is that right? He only wanted to play KD, yeah. I would watch that, though. Bill that, Murray against very... Ford? Well, no. Well, no Nick Nolte would... against Ford. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole Kidman wanted to be Danielle, but Scorsese wanted someone younger. Sarah yeah. Jessica Park was originally cast. No thanks. But yeah. Um, Drew Barrymore and Reese Witherspoon both auditioned, but eventually I think it went to the right person, Juliette Lewis. Definitely. Yeah. I think you, sorry, you, you touched on Juliette Lewis, Ben, because obviously she was a breakout star at the age of, what, 18? Yeah. You know, Oscar nominated. And then she did Natural Born Killers and then. I know she's in a lot of films, but she doesn't mm. star in a lot of films since then. You know, she's in like from Dust Till Dawn. And and it is a shame because maybe maybe if she was an actress today, because she's an attractive woman, she's a sexy woman, you know, she and she almost got cast in those roles. Had she been around today, would she may have I don't, I don't know. What, I wonder what happened. You know, was it- well, my understanding is she got a lot more interested in music and and went that route but she's also i believe had some substance abuse issues in the late 90s early 2000s she's still definitely doing stuff i, I i'm sure i heard her on the commode show a few years ago but yeah she she didn't become a star did she i just i'm i'm always fascinated to see 
who was originally offered the part, who they wanted for the part, who who actually wanted to play them. And just because it makes you think about how a film could have been, mm. if it would have been worse, better, it would have gone a completely different direction. But this is the most fascinating to me. Robert De Niro, he paid a doctor $5,000 to grind his teeth down to give his character more menace. I mean, he had the money and afterwards, you know, paid quite a substantial amount to get them restored. But 20 grand! Kind of, yeah it's commitment isn't it that is commitment but i don't maybe it's one of those things that you know works on a subliminal level or a subconscious level or whatever but did you even notice his teeth in this the only time i paid attention to his teeth was i think he's supposed to have knocked out at the end you know so he's got just gums and little bits of black teeth but other than that yeah weird (sighs) no i mean i he did look very different to how I've ever seen De Niro before. And maybe that yeah. was part of it, but there was not a single part of me that went, oh, he's had his teeth done. Yeah. Yeah. Commitment, but insanity, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah method man gone mad. Not mm. method man from, you know, not the, the hip hop guy. Uh, there was a, there's a quote uh, from Roger Ebert who liked the film and he gave it three stars, but he said, Cape Fear is impressive movie making, showing Scorsese as a master of traditional Hollywood genre who is able to mold it in his own themes and obsessions. But as I look at this $35 million movie with big stars, special effects and production values, I wonder whether it represents a good omen from the finest director now at work. And I think Scorsese, over the course of the following 30 years, has shown Roger Ebert he's talking out of his arse. Because I think the films that Scorsese's made since Cape Fear are probably some of the best of his career. I watched a, a brief video on YouTube. Uh, it was discussing, it was about the adaptation. It was more comparing it to the, to the book itself. Right, yeah. Yeah, so it's called The Executioners. And I think there's the, the core themes of the film are the same. Uh, a couple of things that they uh, they did tweak. Apparently the, the book is is even darker than both films. Uh, and there's a lot of certainly um, darker than the original one. Um, and there's a lot more graphic, uh, descriptive sexual attack and rape within it. So, yeah, I'm not a reader. But, you know, if you are, if you want to, if you want to complete the set, then, yeah, The Execution is is the novel that, that both these films is based upon. It is interesting that what what you couldn't get away with in film at the time, you really could get away with in print. But having read a synopsis of the execution, it does sound a lot more straightforward in terms of what happens between Bowden and Katie and and how it ends up than I think what both films you know did with it. I I think the original film made it a more interesting story from what I've read. So the first of our regular kind of scoring mechanisms, or features uh, we need to take one thing from the remake pop it into the original and that could be the effects work actors characters themes again ben you seem really confident in yours so do you want to go first well i haven't actually done the research on this but i'm pretty sure they were working at the time the title sequence at the beginning is done by elaine and saul bass who were famous for doing these very stylized openings to films i'm pretty sure they did like vertigo and rear window and psycho and things like that for hitchcock again so i would i would stick a elaine and saul bass credit sequence on the original Catherine, have you got anything um i would take the score from the remake and put it in the original (laughs) fair enough it is better i think bernstein improved on herman's work yeah so i've um we touched on the wife i'd I'd take the wife and she actually does something you know she, she's so, a character. so just the character rather than the actor the character yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, the, not necessarily the actress you know she was much more involved she did she had stuff to do her scene 
towards the end where she's, as you described it, Ben, you're explaining she kind of understands how Max feels uh, and almost goading him onto her to protect his, her daughter. The moment I love when when Katie's talking to Danny is it, the realisation for for Jessica Lange's character that what has already happened that she was unaware of in in Katie's, you know, approaching and trying to grooming her daughter on top of what is about to happen. Yeah, all of that stuff's incredible, I think. And that's what makes it so difficult to watch. Sure, yeah. Indeed. Next up, we've got our three-word reviews. So anybody got a three-word review for this one? Too damn much. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you you used the word cinematic, Ben, and I've actually got that in my three-word review. It is an intense cinematic fear. I think it, it does play up to the cinema elements of it, and that's probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, I've gone for something similar. Stylized provocative madness is what I've gone for. Let's go for it. Very good. And finally, we've discussed both films. We have to rate the remake against the original. Ben reminds ourselves and our listeners what the uh, what the review score mechanism is. Well, if you've taken an already good film and improved on it in some way, then we're saying that it's amazing. If you've taken an already good film and pretty much done a straight remake of it, you've not necessarily made it worse or better, it's an agree make. And if you've taken an already good film and maybe done something not great with it, then it's an unmake. Catherine, do you want to go first? Well, <sighs> speak from your I heart, mean, Catherine. I, I know what I want to say for myself. Yeah. But I do not want to take away what this film means to anybody else or the fact that it could be a fantastic film in terms of the way it's made or that it's cinematic or whatever you've you've discussed about it those things may all be true for me it's an unmake fair enough yeah so i i was thinking about this and i would say the so the remake is a better made film it's better performances on the whole better performances it's probably about, you know a broader set of good rate performances but i'm an remake. i think it's it's not it doesn't because the original i thought was so good and it does, it's a modern version of it. It does dial things up. I wouldn't say too far because I think I appreciate what they've tried, you know, Scorsese and the team have tried to do that, try to differentiate it, try to modernize it, but it doesn't eclipse it. It doesn't do that much better. And I think while it's a better made film, if I was to sit down and watch one in a few years' time, I'd probably go for the original first. Fascinating. I don't disagree with either of you in terms of the points you've made, I think probably for how bold it was and how daring and provocative for when it was released, I do think the 62 film is probably a better film. But if you gave me the option of watching one or the other today, I would watch the Scorsese film because on a, on a cinematic level and for the depth of the characters and the performances, especially of Juliette Lewis and actually Nick Nolte. I really like Nick Nolte and, and Jessica Lange. Just all four of them, really, let's face it. I, I, I think it's a, a more interesting piece of text in a lot of ways. So I'm going to go remazing, I'm afraid. Yeah, that is a split decision. I think we, we've had one of these before, haven't we? Yeah, Wicker Man and also Wicker Sudden Man. Death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've got a split decision. Um, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because it, when if you say 
if I say unmake that film, what does that lead to? Does that lead to Martin <laughs> Scorsese not making any of his other films? Would it have taken him in a different direction? Uh, Would have he have so. made Schindler's List? You know, yeah. I, it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. yeah. The thing is, Would Catherine, you, you're, you're talking about this as if you're Thanos and you can <laughs> wind back time and actually unmake this film. Yeah. We have little impact on the universe, so you just say whatever you want. I understand that. I'm just... When I'm trying to make my decision, I'm trying to think of all the parameters of why I'm making my decision. I'm thinking far too much about it. It's go. interesting. To, it is interesting to me that you had such a strong reaction to the film. And I wouldn't take that away from you at all. I think part of that, and I think you've addressed it yourself, is Scorsese is doing something very effective, even if it is over the top. It is extremely uncomfortable at times to watch this film. But I also understand the whole thing of like, well, there was sort of a subtlety to the way that the original was written and delivered that it is completely absent from Scorsese's film. It's it's not subtle at all. It is over the top. But then there's room for both of those type of films. Sure. I just don't have to watch them. Yeah. That is our discussion on Cape Fear. Fair to say they were two uh, incredibly intense, uh, thrilling horrifying terrifying films mixed it up again this week or next week so we're on to film number eight of the season and we'll be watching 1957's 310 to yuma and the 50 years later remake also called 310 to yuma so for me i've seen neither i've got the remake i got it when i was recollecting blu-rays and as part of starting this podcast i've just never i thought well i'll wait we might cover it uh, in the future. So I know Christian Bale and Russell Crowe is in the remake. It's a Western. That's my knowledge. Catherine? Yeah, I've seen the remake. I tend to mix it up in my head a lot with The Quick and the Dead, which Russell Crowe is also in. So I can't really remember the story. I think I, I think I liked it. It was a long time ago anyway. So I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it again. I'm watching both of them. And I have a confession to make because I was thinking about this the other day. I've got both of these films on DVD. So I was sure that I'd seen them both. I've definitely seen the Christian Bale, Russell Crowe one, but it turns out every time that I think about the original 310 to Yuna, I realize what I'm actually remembering is High Noon. So I don't think I've seen the original at all. And I think the only reason I've got the DVD is it was left to me when I remember my family died. So <laughs> I'll be dusting it off in their memory. There you go. There we go. Well, so if you are watching along as well as listening, good news this week, both um, films readily available digitally. The original uh, you can pick up on Apple or Google, uh, £3.49 to rent, or you can buy it for £7.99. There's also a Criterion DVD and Blu-ray knocking around, so uh, if you've got that or feeling a bit flush and want to splash out, pick up that. The remake is streaming on Netflix, time of recording at least in the UK. Uh, If you're not a Netflix subscriber, um, you can just rent it at the standard kind of £3.49 price. So uh, as always, check out justwatch.com where you can find the latest available prices or streaming services where you can find these films uh, in your region. Ben, if somebody is uh, watching and listening along with us, they might they might want to get in touch. You know, if Christian Bale's there, wants to yeah. get on and chat about films. Russell Crowe, definitely, please. Yeah. One, one of my, my favourites, I love Rusty Crowe. Uh, so if you're out there, Russ... And you're on Facebook. I hope you don't mind me calling you Russ. Go to facebook.com forward slash good, bad remake, or look for the good, the bad, and the remake movie podcast. If you go on Twitter, and I know Crow's got a strong Twitter presence, and you want to see 
details of upcoming episodes, films that Neil's watching, and occasionally interaction with the director Asif Kapadia. Go to at Good Bad Remake on Twitter, or you can email us your confidential thoughts, suggestions, comments, feedback, three word reviews, anything you want. Good Bad Remake at gmail.com. Please do get in touch. That leaves us for this week. Thank you for all for listening. Uh, as Dan says, do get in touch on the old socials. Uh, I look forward to, uh, to discussing 310 to Yuma with you next week. Goodbye. See you next time. So long. Mm-hmm.